Bandwidth for GS Party is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Welcome to GS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JSPartyFM. And now on to the show. Hello and welcome to the JS Party podcast, where some people might say that it's a party every day with JavaScript, but I certainly would never say that. Uh, this is a ridiculous tagline. Anyways, uh, today we have two guests who are members of the JavaScript community who I'm happy to have on. Uh, we were talking a little bit before the show how uh, we were finally brave enough to do an all JavaScript uh, dad podcast, um, the most important uh, underrepresented group of JavaScript developers, almost certainly. But t today we have uh, Wes Boss and Mike Taylor. So uh, Wes, introduce yourself. Hey everybody, my name's Wes. I'm a full stack dev from Canada and I primarily make uh, coding tutorials and courses on how to become a better web dev. Very nice of you. And Mike, how, how about yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Mike Taylor. I, I work for Mozilla. I guess technically I'm a manager. Um, I manage the uh, web compatibility team and uh, that makes me a half empty stack developer because um, <laughs> I see lots of really depressing things. Um, and I, I work from home and uh, here in Austin, Texas. I also work from home in Austin, Texas. Uh, Wes, you sometimes work from home, is that true? Yeah, no, I, I always work from home. Oh. I'm in uh, Hamilton. What's the Hacker You stuff that you do? Uh, hack, well, Hacker You stuff is I teach twice a week part-time class in Toronto at Hacker You. So okay. I, I guess I do, uh, I do go in to teach there, but everything else is from home. So you lied. This first thing out of your mouth is a lie. Uh, well, well, well. <laughs> you you well, probably yes. have a you have a pretty good AV setup. I know this isn't an AV podcast, but uh, I I appreciate a good AV setup because you do all the tutorials. Yeah. So you you have like a little office with uh, microphones and yeah. Video. Yeah. I think I even asked you about how to do this stuff when I was first getting into it. But uh, oh, yeah, I've got a whole bunch of boxes with knobs and they're turned the right way, and it makes me sound boomier than I actually am. Very well, nice. nice. I actually haven't yeah. received any of the royalty checks uh, from that help that I initially. Oh, do. so if yeah, you could just well, get those. I yeah, I I sent it. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. It must be the, the damn U.S. mail. You should cash those as fast as you can because he sent them in Canadian dollars. Uh, so it's true. It's just yeah, you were just plummeting. tweeting that I, we should visit. We should visit <laughs> Canada. What's the deal there? Uh, just as as yeah. an economics podcast. Uh, Stuff is happening in Canada with oil and NAFTA and mortgages, oh. and the Canadian dollar is going down, which makes those who have U.S. dollars kings in Canada. So you can come here and eat like kings, have oysters, and I don't know, go buy gold bars, listen to Drake, poutine, poutine all you, day. Yeah, you you could upgrade to the the meat poutines, the the brisket. Oh, that's yeah. so gnarly. Did you have that when you came here? Oh, yeah, I had the brisket poutine for sure. Oh, yeah, that's good. I usually get Slaughterhouse, which is every type of meat. Oh, <laughs> that's intense. <laughs> which is, that sounds which terrible. Is, if anyone's listening, it, it is. It is amazing. <laughs> it's like every... What poutine is like is French fries with cheese curds and then gravy so the cheese curds melt. And then you just put like every type of 
topping on top of it and you just want to sleep after you've eaten it. This is how Canadians make it through the winter, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah you, you hunker down. It's, it's sort of like bears, except we still have to live. So we eat large amounts of potatoes and cheese. And, and sleep. I've always thought that the name cheese curds didn't really do the actual thing justice. It sounds gross. The name yeah. cheese curd. Curd. Yeah. Not, not I don't know what would be a better name, though. But like cheese, I mean, hunks, cheese nuggets? It, yeah. The cheese nuggets would be fine, I guess. That. The, what a cheese curd actually is is just like the leftover cheese chunks that fall off in the cheese factory. So it's like the the swept off the like, floor. Yeah, well, maybe not the floor, but but something <laughs> swept off of something. Uh, I think we're we're maybe a little too far into dairy, um, but we we can we can come back out. Um, there were a few things to happen in in the world of the web this week or javascript i guess is, is the party we're having specifically there is a uh, quite a bit of talk about ecmascript modules hitting browsers and and i'm not sure there's a ton to talk about here wes you've done some like uh ecmo module tutorial stuff uh, as part of a larger tutorial yeah 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 i've, I've got a es6 series and part of that is obviously learning about how the modules work but Currently, what that is, is you have to use Webpack or something to, to bundle it up. So I guess now we are able to use modules straight away in the browser. Yeah, and that's the, the type attribute equaling module. One interesting thing that I think was misunderstood a little bit from the node drama around ECMAScript modules, which was that you're going to have to use the .mjs extension. So instead of yeah. .js, you have to use .mjs. And maybe, Mike, I don't know if any of this hit, like, standards versus just Node stuff, because I think it's kind of Node-specific. Yeah. But on the web, the web version of it, that's not actually true. You can use JavaScript because we don't currently have a module spec that people are using wrong. It's all pre-built anyways. So you could actually, like, the web doesn't give any damn about uh, what extension you use. You could use .php for all your module files. You probably should. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a best practice for sure. Just to, just to show your mastery of your knowledge of the non-importance of extensions on the web. Mike, is, is there, I asked you a question and then I answered most of the question I asked you, but is there any kind of movement in, in the standard space here that you've seen or is it just mostly been like this came out? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think there's still problems that need to be resolved. Um, I don't. I don't follow... So this this work was done a, a lot of it in conjunction with TC39, right? So they're they're the mm-hmm. the standards body that works on ECMAScript, the language, which is uh, what we know as JavaScript. But the but the actual like module loading stuff happened in the HTML spec in the What Working Group, and that's it's just like if if you ever run out of email to read, you should subscribe <laughs> to that GitHub repo because uh, it's it's. It's impressive that individuals are able to to keep up with that. I'm kind of just like I like to collect the emails for fun, but um, I haven't followed it too closely. You you were, you were saying Alex about I think you were you were talking about some of the problems around backwards compatibility for the Node ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah yeah and 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 you're right. We don't have those on the on the web in browsers because like any quote unquote module system we've had like if you used like a module loader like Require JS or the other one, um, yeah. I, I think you wrote a couple, Alex. Maybe no. Uh, 
Definitely not. Um, that's all just like regular JavaScript, right? It all evaluated to just be like the exact same thing as, I don't know, a script tag at the end of the day. So there's, there's, there's really been no browser compatibility constraints. So there, but there is this issue, there's this, this no module attribute. And that's something that I've, I don't really entirely understand it. And browsers don't even really support this now. But there are some kind of problems you can get into if your browser supports modules and you're mixing module code and non-module code. And so there, there will be a way for you to say, like, this one's not a module. Like, this is just, this is my fallback for um, Safari 9 or, or Firefox, I don't know, right. 38, whatever it is. Oh, so, I see. But, but that said, I know, like, 1% of things to know about that. But if you're, if you're concerned about compatibility, like, if it's your job. <laughs> it's Mike's job. In theory, you should know about this. So that's, like, on my to-do list. Eventually, you know, like anytime you add stuff to the web platform, like, uh, hang on a second. What's, is this like a PG podcast or a PG-13? PG-13 is fine. Okay. So I'll just say stuff is going to break. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save our swear words for the end. Like when we put our kids to bed, yeah. um, stuff's going to break. And so whenever you add to the web platform, like people make all these weird assumptions, um, you know, heck someone might've use type equals module. And so you're, you're going to run into broken web pages. So this is an area where I imagine in, in a year or two, when we start actually like serving web pages like this, we'll, we'll feel that pain. We just, we just don't know right now. Yes. I, I don't think there's a ton of people using this in production quite yet, just by the nature of how new, new it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, this is like this week, right? That you <laughs> yeah. could even yeah. serve like an evergreen demo type thing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just just looking at a quick little blog post about it here, and, and for those listening that want to sort of know a little bit more about it, what this blog post is recommending is that you ship your ES6 modules to the browser, and then you use this no module attribute that Mike was talking about uh, to signify to the browser, hey, when you do not support ES6 modules, uh, you so you should sort of ship like two versions of of your code base, one compiled and one not, and you can sort of fall back to the uh, compiled version when there's not module support mm-hmm. so it's like a transition phase right right yeah it's the the no script of module right <laughs> yeah, yeah kind of it's it's the no module yeah i think <laughs> i see where they came up with the name amazing <laughs> one interesting thing that I, I guess i didn't really consider until now and i may be considering it incorrectly but they kind of whenever they did the modules back in TC39, there are things about modules that are true that they were able to, like, since modules are new, and if you're using a module, that must mean you're using new JavaScript, which means that they can make different defaults to the language while you're in a module, if that kind of makes sense. So they assume that since you're in a module that you must be in strict mode. So I believe that's the case, right? So this would be the yeah. first time since this is the first native implementation of modules anywhere. This is probably the first time that that is enforced versus just uh, like an opt-in type thing. Yeah, part of the yeah. compiler compiler that you're using that that may or may not care about the strictness of your code because it, it wouldn't actually be enforced by the the engine at, at runtime, right? Mm-hmm. So it probably actually means that in to some degree there are places where modules could run faster because they have fewer old things to worry about. Is it the case oh, yeah. that like you can't do uh, it's async by default, so you also can't do 
document.write and things like that. So it could very potentially allow the browser, like browsers are pretty good at look ahead and all that stuff now. So it may not actually material make a ton of difference, but it's kind of cool that because modules are a new enough thing that we can kind of unbreak some old things if you, if you use them. Yeah. It's that, that reminds me of like service workers, right? You know, if, if your browser supports service workers in order to, to support service worker, you have to implement a bunch of other things like fetch and other things. And so like you, you only need to do like one level of feature detection to be like, do I have service worker on document or I don't know. Right. However you do that. And then you can make all these assumptions like, okay, now I'm in a modern environment and you can, you don't have to worry about right. all the other gross stuff. Right. So. Yeah, there's there's something with this CSP that's very similar uh, content security policy where if you things on the page break if you're in an old browser and you have this CSP, but since those old browsers don't have CSP support, then it, it kind of accidentally works. It's this nice accidental upgradiness that breaks in a really nice way in, in the old place. It's nice when we can move things forward that way. That's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about, Mike, you work on web compatibility. It's kind of similar to some of the stuff that we're talking about. Um, I've seen you give a few talks on this, and, and you're, you're at it from Mozilla, but there's a lot of actual more like general, is it part of a standards organization, the compatibility effort? It feels like it's cross-browser people working on it together to help move the web yeah this this it's not just a mozilla thing um i mean mozilla pays for my mortgage at the end of the day which i'm I'm grateful for but you know like our mission so so i guess you take a step back if, if you've ever looked at what the mozilla we call it the manifesto i don't know yeah the, the mission uh maybe i should go take a step back and reread that but <laughs> you've got these like guiding principles of like what it is that we do and there's 10 of them and like number three, six and nine. Don't fact check me on that. It really have to do with this notion of like, as, as an individual, I should have the freedom to experience the internet um, in any way that I see fit. Um, and so that doesn't just mean like, as an individual, I should download Firefox and use it, um, you know, which you should because uh, I like to feed my kids. <laughs> but like you should be able to use, you know, like the promise of the of the open web and the internet is that anybody can access this information independent of their browser choices um, or you know their their ability to do certain things, you know, like kind of raises questions of accessibility or um, even access to bandwidth, et cetera. So so with that being like one of the guiding principles of what Mozilla does, uh, we obviously want the internet to work in Firefox, but we also want the web to work in Chrome, in Edge, in, you know, X, Y, and Z, Opera Mini, et cetera. So I think by the nature of what it is that we do, we collaborate a lot with other vendors. Uh, this morning I was on a call with uh, some of the good people at Google who work on the, the platform predictability team. Uh, Rick Byers is, is one and Philip Yegestet, another um, who used to be at Opera. And we were, we were talking about ways we can collaborate and kind of understand what are the pain points in the platform where things, you know, like, is this something that Chrome is not following the spec, but lots of web pages depend on? Um, so what are the solutions there? 
you know, is Google willing to to break that to to move towards the standard, or should we change the standards to move towards reality? That's what happens most. That's kind of the default answer usually. It seems like, especially with very old Internet Explorer stuff, it seemed like half of HTML5 is us just standardizing. Yeah, Internet exactly. Explorer. That's still the case. Uh, it's 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 often the case, you know. So a lot of the work I've been done, doing the past year and a half, two years is. Is just uh, standardizing what what I call the de facto web, right? So you've got you've got the web that you have promised, or the or the web that was written in specs, and you know like people like Zeldman and and others said like code to web standards and it'll work everywhere. And then mm -hmm. you've got the re reality, which is you know like Apple came out with some really cool advanced CSS features years ago. You remember like when they had man, this is like five, six, seven, eight years ago they had masks and gradients and reflections and all this all this cool stuff that just you couldn't do anywhere else and so of course designers and developers like want to want to experiment and they want to put that in their products and what happens over time is apple didn't do such a great job at actually like moving those things towards standards bodies um, but it worked it worked in browsers and then and we know chrome came to be and they they ended up using webkit and then they forked to blink and inherited all this code so basically like the internet depends on this one feature and so you can either like pretend or you know get really upset like oh it's non-standard and you can care about that or you can just say like you know what this is part of the web and it has a crappy name that crappy name happens to just start with like dash webkit um and so let's let's create a, a spec for it and let's get all the browsers to implement it and then and then it just works it at the same time you know like that kind of stuff it kind of ruffles feathers like people are, are not entirely happy about it uh, both users and some other people at the w3c um you know like some of the stuff that i worked on uh the the css working group they were like uh this is not you know this is not our ideal design and so uh they're partially motivated to go make better versions mm -hmm. um, which is I, I think great for the web so so yeah to circle back uh you were hinting at this you know there, there's an expression uh pave the cow paths. Not sure if anyone's ever heard that with respect to standards or just like path paving in general. I don't know if that's a profession. I was assuming that Ian Hickson, the editor of the HTML5 specs default like response and his like his his autoresponder and his email was just we're actually just standardizing the way things have always been uh, not designing a new thing. Uh, it yeah. seemed like his answer to to a lot of things, which, which is fair but often frustrating. Yeah, I mean that's why that's why drag and drop is so terrible. For example, right? It's like, well, IE3 did this, and then Safari 2 copied it, so might as well yeah. make everyone else do it, and then nobody uses it. Um, so paving the cow past this notion that like you know all these cows walked this way, so that's obviously the optimal solution. So you you want to lay down some asphalt on that. So that's that's kind of one aspect of this this work. Part of that, we my team works on this website called webcompat.com. And that's a place where you can go if you're just like, oh, this website doesn't work in this browser. It could be Firefox or Chrome or like an issue tracker, yeah. whatever. Yeah, it's it's basically like a, a honeypot for broken bugs, <laughs> um, broken web pages. And then we've got a we've got a small team that goes in and tries to triage. And but it's you know it's like an open community effort. Anybody can contribute, diagnose, do outreach, etc. But we use that to try to help us understand. Like, what does the web really look like? What's the shape of the web? Because it's it doesn't always line up with the shape of what web standards are. 
And you know that that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody who's developed more than one web page <laughs> and opened it in two browsers, right? You know yeah. that like it's it's all hacks and there's bugs and you know you you want certain features but they only exist in one browser and and so it's it's kind of like this this big mess. That's a lot of fun and and has a lot of potential. You know, just to spitball a couple examples off the top of my head, you can tell me when to stop talking and I I will. Yeah, keep going. One thing that's really common, uh, a problem for like Firefox for Android users is, uh, so there's a streaming f video format called HLS. I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with that. It, it, that stands for HTTP live streaming. Um, and, and so this is not a web standard. This, it's not like Dash uh, over MPEG or uh, MSE, right? Like we have these standards that exist to where you can take segments of video and kind of stitch them together and let people stream them live. Apple went and they they created this other version, which uh, is really popular. I don't know why it's popular. It might be way easier to use. But basically, what you could do is you have a manifest file. It's called an M3U8 file. And that's it's uh, literally just like a, a text file with a list of uh, MPEG-TS segments. And then you stick that in the video source video src equals blah.m3u8 and then the browser that supports it will play it it's not an open standard and so that means you can't freely implement this if that makes sense you might have to pay some money to some people got it um and and i'm being careful here i don't want to use the p word because then we're all subpoenaed and <laughs> right so so gecko doesn't <laughs> implement this because it's not free as in free stuff. Um, and so... He nailed, he nailed that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you. Uh, shout out to my, my spiritual mentor, Richard Stallman. Um, <laughs> so people go to look at their like, favorite live streaming web pages, which are typically not PG-13, and it doesn't work. And so that's really frustrating, and they report this bug to us. And, and so we come to understand that, like, whoa, there's a lot of web pages that are using this non-standard streaming format like this is a problem we need to understand and tackle um like what are what is not working for these people this is like the classic betamax versus vhs story isn't it yeah a little bit <laughs> um what was the other one it was like hd dvd yeah yeah versus a um, uh, blue blu-ray yeah so a another one of these things that i'm working on right now is uh, it's called window.event. It's this global event object. And if you know what this is, uh, I'm amazed. And hopefully you don't use it in your code. But this is something that, that IE invented. And, you know, they had, they had a different event model before the W3C came up with their own. And so... Add, add event? Yeah, attach event, right? Attach event, yeah. Um, and, and as part of that, you had this global event object. So when you're inside of an event handler, you can just access it by calling event.target oh, yeah. or it, it was called source element, but same thing. And so the W3C was like, no, we're going to, we're going to do our own thing called add event listener. I think they copied what Netscape was doing and you pass in the event object. So if you've ever written some JavaScript, you'll know that like when you're, when you're writing your little on click equals function and you pass in sometimes an E or an EV or an event, and then you can, you can use that guy inside of your event handler, your callback. Uh, so, so it turns out IE invented this thing 
And Safari, back when it was actually, it was KHTML, so this is before Apple even forked. You know, this was some some, some crazy Norwegians in, in Oslo made this, they were called Trolltech. They made a browser engine which turned into KHTML. And they had to implement that for compatibility to like get some banks running or whatever. So then Safari has it. People start just like probably copying and pasting code from Stack Overflow. Um, and it just keeps on working because you had no idea this was even a thing. And it works in Chrome and it works, you know, and it works in Edge because they forked from IE. And so this is one of these things where you're like, oh, um, we should just spec this and call it it's part of the web platform like it's it's ugly it's historical and yeah so so this is something i'm i'm working with uh anna van kesteren who is a web standards wizard and he's mm -hmm. he works on html and, and dom and probably 50 other things and so this is there's there's an op the open pull request and then that'll just be part of the web so you're saying the event is just not standardized so so the event object is standardized. Yeah. Um, having a, a global variable that references that event. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. So, so, yeah. That's such a terrible architecture for, like, it's so obviously wrong that it's, it's beautiful that. Yeah. It's... 10, 10 to 15 <laughs> years later, we, we're all forced to implement it as a standard. We're, we're stuck <laughs> with it. So, so, so you, you know, like in, in your work, you know, when you started programming, like global variables were amazing, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then as you become more sophisticated, you're like, oh wait, these cause and create pain. Um, yeah. And and so I think I, I don't know what the the moral to that story is. We're we're back to, <laughs> uh, you you know, it's it's like this is the technical debt of the web, basically. So yeah, uh, I think we're running off on a break, but we'll uh, get back with some hot takes after the break. First sponsor of the show today is our friends at Sentry, helping you to find and fix your errors in your applications. You can start tracking your errors today totally free. They support React, Angular, Ember, Vue, Backbone, and Node frameworks like Express and Koa. You can view actual code and stack traces, including support for source maps, see the errors URL, parameters, and session information, and even prompt your user for feedback when you have front-end errors. Head to jsparty.fm slash sentry. Start tracking your errors for free today. No credit card required. Get off the ground with their free plan. And when you're ready to expand your usage, simply pay as you go. Once again, jsparty.fm slash sentry. And now back to the show. And we're back. So I, I wanted to ask both of you a question that is not like a normal question that we ask on the show, but I often find interesting, especially since both of you end up have ended up in like standards and teaching and stuff like that rather than necessarily directly creating i think we've all done some direct trading but you guys are in somewhat different positions now so so i'm i'm interested in how you got into web development do you have computer science degrees and did you do web stuff when you were 10 or was it your myspace page uh wes how about you yeah, um, it was my MySpace page. Oh. That's exactly how I got into it, which I don't know if you knew that or not, but no, um, it's pretty standard for uh, folks like me, I guess. Um, yeah, I initially got into it way back uh, when I was sort of in the music scene, and uh, that allowed me to build MySpaces for bands. And that turned into doing T-shirts and CD art, and from there, I just started charging, and then uh, 
I worked all the way through grade school, high school, and then uh, through university building this sort of stuff. And then uh, as I finished university, I uh, just started working for myself, doing consulting and whatnot. So yeah, I've been at it for probably 10, 15 years, uh, but I've I've probably built some sites even before that. So you're primarily self-taught? Yeah. In, well, I would say entirely self-taught. Um, mm-hmm. I went to school for what's called business technology management. So I have a <laughs> business degree that's focused on running IT. So generally, they, they sort of like, you're like, you go into work at banks and stuff and run the mm-hmm. IT infrastructure and, and work on projects and stuff like that for these big corporations. So like, I, I we were taught a lot about like, swim lane diagrams and sending emails and, and the business side of things, <laughs> but the actual like coding, there was no, no actual coding in the entire course. It's more like that obnoxious manager that doesn't know what they're talking about. Right, right, right. Uh, so yeah, I just, uh, I picked up, I, but I was coding all through university. So I, I kind of have the best of both worlds now where I, I can understand, I can speak to people, I can write emails uh, and, and I know yeah. the business side of things, but then I can also sling the code. It's very interesting because you ended up as, I mean, your primary job as a teacher, whether it's via the tutorials or via hacker school. Yeah, yeah. That comes across to me in a way, I came up through some, like I, I was programming on my MySpace, but it, I really came up through members.aol.com before MySpace, <laughs> but I was, I was in the MySpace scene for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I have an academic, like I have a computer science degree and it's interesting to me how many of the people who write very good, uh, relatable tutorials for people to learn web development don't have that. And I think it's almost a, a benefit to uh, oh yeah <laughs> to them rather than a, something that is harmful. Just just yeah, it's a such a relatable position. I think I think people with computer science degrees by nature lack empathy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Do you have a computer Seriously, science though. degree? Just kidding. No, I don't. So uh, my my story is uh, it's kind of interesting. I, I studied linguistics in school. I did uh, a bachelor's, and I ended up working towards a PhD at NYU. I was very disappointed whenever you did not finish. Yeah, I, I dropped out. Me and, and your mom. Alex and my mom are still <laughs> like working through this. Um, my wife was not sad, by the way, but. Uh, what what happened was so when I was an undergrad, so I, I was interested in computers as a kid, um, but we never really had the finances to have like a, a a PC at the house, and so like for me, computers was all about the public library, um, and I would I would read those old like programming magazines where they had like you know basic mm-hmm. programs, but I would just kind of like read them and imagine <laughs> what they did. It's it's <laughs> it's a tragic story, oh, um, yeah. but. Uh, Later, when I was in college, you know, I was I was uh, 22 years old or something. Um, I was at my buddy's house, and his his younger brother, his name is Carl, was was doing something on the computer, and he had you know he had some text open in a text editor. It was it was like Notepad.exe, and I said, "Hey, what are you doing? That looks interesting." And so he was a total brat, and he was just like, "You wouldn't understand." You know, it's like way too complicated. And it turns out he was he was editing a theme, not for MySpace, but there was a there was a web page called Diaryland. So it was like even more emo than MySpace. Wow. Um, <laughs> which is like I was on your... my teen open diary at, at one point, I believe. That sounds about 
I'm going to go look for those blog posts. <laughs> yeah. And so out of spite, I went to the library and I checked out a book on like HTML 3.2. I don't even think they had 4.0. Sure. whatever. And, and I taught myself how to, how to make web pages just kind of as a hobby. I thought it was fun. Um, as a challenge from Carl is just, yeah, don't, don't tell like, me what I can't do. You kid. Um, it was spike driven development. <laughs> exactly. And so later, later in grad school at NYU, uh, I, I needed a way to, um, earn money to pay rent during the summer months. So I had a fellowship, which paid me like $3 a day to live in New York city. So we were mostly covered for, for the academic year. Um, and I ended up with, with some internships and some freelance stuff and just kind of really self-taught and got interested in, in web standards and specs and, and stuff like that and, and just kind of read a lot of email in my free time. Honestly, I think like, like Chris Coyer, CSS Tricks, taught me mm -hmm. CSS. Um, that was like my, my go-to resource. SitePen had some amazing books and oh, yeah. tools. And then as I, as I got more interested in it, uh, I got to audit a few classes at NYU. Like I took a Ruby on Rails class and uh, had no idea what I was doing. I remember like the very first assignment was like SSH into this box <laughs> and, and like put your contact details in a, in a file, you know, or something like that's homework number one. And I remember like sitting there in my office, my little grad student office, like trying to Google what the heck SSH was. And <laughs> <laughs> took me hours to figure that out. It was, it was pretty painful. Um, Part of my computer science degree was linguistics. I want like, do you ever find that it's a useful thing in, in the like, language parts of programming and stuff? I think so. Like I was, I was just thinking about this the other day. Like, so this new, what's that thing called that Facebook just came out with that is like a code, code pack or something code pack, pack, prepack, prepack. Pre yes. Thank you. So prepack, you know, like, I was looking at that, thinking about you know, base, so so it uses Babel or Babel or I don't know how to pronounce. Depends that. on if you're if you're Canadian, like Wes, it's Babel, and if you're Babel. normal, if you're normal, then it's Babel. Mm -hmm. That's offensive <laughs> to Canadians. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, Mike, explain what that is, just since it is pretty relevant news. Yes, yeah, so 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 prepack is it's it's basically something that takes it simplifies your code, right? So like let's it takes Babel slash Babel, um, and it'll, what that does is it creates an AST, which is an abstract syntax tree. So it'll, it'll go through and understand, like, what are the operations that your code, like, what's, what's the structure and what are the operations it's trying to do at this kind of, like, abstract, wonky level? You're basically, like, drawing graphs and trees. And, and once you know that information, you can transform it and spit it out in different ways that'll be functionally equivalent. And so what Prepack is trying to do is if you go to their, their homepage, one of the examples they give is like, you've got this really complex recursive function trying to get like a Fibonacci sequence and you're, you're going to call it uh, and it's going to recurse like 27 times. The, the end result of that function is just the number like 32,000 oh, yeah, yeah. something, right? Like I, I can't remember. Yeah. So Prepack will go through and it'll do that operation for you beforehand so the code you actually have to ship to the user is literally like var x equals 20 or 30,000 whatever it is and so you're you're reducing the computation that has to happen on the client and also the size of the file you have to send and so long story short you know I was I was thinking about this like I spent years in college in syntax classes and and our homework was basically like 
here's a sentence and I write an AST for this sentence using like Chomsky's oh, yeah. minimalist syntax, whatever. Um, and so it was a lot of drawing trees and doing grammar transformations. And so I think that kind of like logical uh, education definitely helped understand programming. And it's it's probably helped uh, with, with spec writing. You know, you have to be really algorithmic. I mean, I'm, I'm terrible at everything I do, but it's, <laughs> it's not so foreign as, as you might imagine if you have that kind of background. Yeah, that's nifty. I guess since we're, we're kind of talking about prepack um, and we're talking a little bit about news, there, there was a thing that came out this week called Interface Lovers um, at Puchu uh, is, is a friend of the podcast. Um, Iani is a dev out of New York. It's interfacelovers.com. Um, it's interviews kind of like we're talking about on just great designers from different backgrounds on where do you come from? How'd you get into design? Uh, it's, it's more design focused than JavaScript focused, but I thought it would be interesting from a perspective of most JavaScript developers care at least somewhat about the interface design and, and UX. So I just wanted to give it a shout out. This is kind of relevant to the things we're talking about here. Uh, I think we may uh, land the plane uh, and go into another break here, but we'll be back uh, with some more from Wes after this since he's a little bit too polite to interrupt Mike and I. I talk way too much. <laughs> if you're looking for trusted freelance talent, ready to join your team right now, I mean like within the week, call upon my friends at TopTal, T-O-P-T-A-L.com. And as a listener of the show, you might actually be one of those developers or designers looking for awesome freelance, independent contractor type opportunities where you can still be a remote worker. You can still have the freedom you have right now, which means you can travel anywhere, you can be anywhere and do what you do. We love TopTal. They've been supporting this show for a very long time. They're really good friends of ours. If you want a personal introduction, I'd be glad to give that to you. Email me, adam at changelaw.com. Otherwise, head to toptal.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com to learn more. Tell them Adam from Changelog sent you. And now back to the show. And we're back. Wes, you work quite a bit on education uh, almost entirely we, we've decided um and i'd like we, we've talked a little bit about education on this podcast but you weren't here so I'd, I'd like to get kind of your take on or explain kind of the the things that you've put out in the past and and sell it or, or do do whatever you need to do here for that it's not why you're here you're here because we love you <laughs> but for the for the record uh mike wes and i all go back to the the days of the jQuery IRC channel from from 2009 2010 area mm -hmm. we were all like helpers in that channel back when that was cool we know each other from conferences so before Wes w became massively famous and successful doing tutorials <laughs> I knew him as a person who helped noobs in the the jQuery IRC channel yeah um, or was asking for help myself <laughs> uh, not ready work <laughs> nobody knows uh, no, no. So, so tell us a little bit about the stuff you've been putting out and I'll, I'll ask you some more questions about techniques and stuff. So I've got, I don't know, maybe six or seven different courses all surrounding different uh, web development. So uh, my, my two biggest ones that are, are paid are uh, es6.io and, and reactforbeginners.com. Um, I'm just on the brink, probably by the time you hear this, it'll be out. I'm going to launch a, uh, a series called Learn Node. So just series that are approachable they're real world based they're project based they're fun uh, they don't really put you to sleep 
uh, and just tutorials learning how to, to attack uh, new technologies that are on the web and, and how to implement them into your, your own uh, sort of your own world. And then the, another one, I've got a whole bunch of free ones as well. Um, I've got more free ones than paid ones. Um, my biggest one is JavaScript 30, which is essentially just like from teaching. I generally get a lot of questions from people like, like Wes, like how do I get better? Like, what do I need to do in order to get better? I'm like, well, the answer is always just like keep doing it. Just do, program build more. lots of stuff. Yeah, program more. And they're like, well, thanks, but that doesn't help me because <laughs> uh, I don't know what to build. Like I was lucky enough that I'm always curious and I always have ideas of stuff I want to build. Um, but some people are not that way where they're just kind of sort of sitting there and they need somebody to like guide them through it. So I came up with this JavaScript 30, which is just 30 projects that are between 10 minutes and 30 minutes long. Um, and it's just like totally all over the place. So it's from webcam stuff to speech detection to creating speech to just doing basic DOM stuff, understanding how event listeners work and clicks and ES6 and whatnot. And uh, people seem to really like it because it's, it's just a great way at, I don't know, it's a, kind of a neat way to uh, learn. Get a lot of surface there. Just modern JavaScript. Yeah, yeah. just to, to put your time in and to get towards that, what, 10,000 hours is what they say you need? <laughs> yeah, Malcolm Gladwell probably needs a few more citations for that, but it, it seems like a pretty good general idea. <laughs> the the yeah. React for Beginners, Beginners course, I personally purchased that. I kind of knew React and have been using it at work for a while, but I had never done an official kind of read of the docs or read of anything. So I was like, I'm sure there's stuff that I misunderstand or am missing that someone who was breaking this down. And I'm happy to announce that I knew everything uh, ahead of time. I learned okay. nothing. You. I learned nothing from your book. <laughs> the, the reality was that like, it was still extremely helpful. Uh, I was able to... Like I definitely encourage, not even just this. Like, it, like certainly go uh, buy Wes's React for Beginners course, even if you're not a beginner at React and and you just want to make sure you have the holes in in your knowledge built. But for other things too, so I I've brought it up a few times with the Redux Egghead.io thing that Danny Abramov did was I've been using Redux for months or a month or something like that at that point, and I listened to that I was like, oh, this this is really cool kind of breaking it down and, and going back to basics now that I had had jumped into it. Sometimes it's hard for certain personality types to start directly on a tutorial. They kind of have to jump in, use it, and then be like, okay, I'm not smart enough to just use this, but that's enough motivation to go yeah. kind of learn the tutorial side of things. So uh, I definitely appreciated that, that tutorial. The, the other thing you, that is interesting is that React kind of moves quickly. So how do you handle the fact that, like, context changes or the the version numbers change so what, what's the what's the strategy there um generally it's just a lot of re-recording um because react moves so quickly it's sort of a blessing and a curse of doing it but um i've re-recorded it twice now um wow. and the whole thing if there's yeah it's wow it's a lot of work it takes a, about a month to record it so it's just uh re-recording it or like i can go in and um jump into a video and be like, hey, folks, um, this totally changed. Uh, so you'll see me grabbing the index file in the root here, but now it's now in a folder. Uh, so that's where it changed. Or uh, React Router, this is one thing I have to do now, is React Router hmm. 4, which we use in the class, and React Router 4 that actually got re got released is totally different API. <laughs> so um, I have to uh, import it again. 
So I'll have to cut into that video and, and redo it. Do you ever think about doing a course like with Scriptaculous um, 1.7? You know, yeah. it's it's settled down. It's pretty <laughs> mature. Yeah, well, that's something that I, I wanted. I, I, when I choose what to do, uh, how fast it's moving is uh, definitely something I take into account just because like I don't want it to be out of date. If it takes me a couple months to build this thing, I don't want it to be out of oh, date right. within a month. So uh, it's definitely like, like I've been talking with some of the Webpack guys and creating a Webpack course. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, so like, what are your plans with the API? And they're like, oh, we're, we're totally going to change it again. And like, oh, <laughs> good. <laughs> so I don't know. We'll see. It's, it's definitely, definitely something that just comes with uh, working on cutting edge stuff. Yeah, it's good that you do that, though. It's very frustrating as as someone who's learning to come across a tutorial that is no longer uh, up to date. It's so oh, yeah. An yeah. anti-helpful. Uh, so yeah. I, I think you're a very noble, good soul oh, good. Thank for, you. for doing that. <laughs> good work, good work. So you also teach at, at HackerU. Is that just general programming stuff? What's HackerU all about? Yeah, that's... um. So, well... I've been there for about five years, um, and uh, I primarily do part-time classes. I have done two of the the boot camps, but um, right now I primarily do the part-time classes as well as like one and two day workshops. Let's talk about boot camps in general too. I I'm interested yeah. in your feelings on like how people come out of those. How you, like you don't have to name names of other ones. Like, do you have a general idea? I think probably a lot of people who listen to podcasts are people who are just getting into things. Maybe they're in a boot camp or they're thinking about a boot camp. Like, where does yeah. it put you? How much can you learn in just your tutorials versus these boot camps, et cetera? Like, I love your thoughts on that. As I interrupt, you probably yeah, give me those thoughts. I think that there's like really no substitution for learning in person with somebody. Um, it, it, like, hands on, having somebody sitting right next to you in, in order to do that, that's especially when you are first learning. Like, that's what the boot camps are targeted at is people who are looking to break into the industry. Um, you can get up to speed so much faster by doing a boot camp rather than than just like obviously you can do it with tutorials, but uh, your time is probably better spent if, if you are able to quit your job and pay mm -hmm. all the thousands of dollars that these things cost. Then absolutely, I think it's a I don't know it's like a really nice way to start. Um, it's not for absolutely everybody. I think that there's a certain type of person that that you need to be in order to make a boot camp work for you. But uh, definitely, uh, definitely a big fan of them. And, and I don't just say that because I've run one. I actually think that because I've seen hundreds and hundreds of people come out of it, both from the Hacker U one as well as other people I talk to that take my course, and they're all in really good shape. Right. I guess that's kind of the, the next question that I, I'm interested in. So my feeling is that the way that men, and I don't think this is the case with Hacker U, but I think the average pitch for these courses are there's a huge like lack of available programmers and because of that you can come in and learn everything you need to learn by doing this extensive 10 hour a day course for 10 weeks uh, and pay these thousands of dollars and then immediately when you leave you'll make a, a six-figure salary and and I I think they're very responsible, and I think Hacker you definitely falls into this category uh, of more responsible. And and I don't even necessarily disagree with 
kind of the idea behind that, which is is like definitely there's a need for programmers. The, the, honestly, I, I find that the the need for programmers should more be stated. There's a need for senior programmers. I think people. I personally don't think people hire nearly enough junior programmers. But what is the? How do you find the transition out of the school? I, my gut is, is that. It's actually more like you can go become an intern at a company and then you can turn that into a job if you do well. And then three years later, you can have the $100,000, which is still great. But uh, I'm, I'm interested in how the, the boot camp that you see typically translates into being able to get a job, being able to get a high salary, yeah. or what the pathway is is to that. Yeah, um, like I don't have the numbers offhand, but I do know that the people that are coming specifically out of the Hacker U bootcamp, within a month of graduating, I'd say about 80, 90% of them do have a paying job. So wow. it's pretty surprising how quickly people can get a job. Um, there's lots of companies who are just hiring out of these bootcamps because they know uh, that they're sort of ramped up. But that is also to say that like, it's not a anyone can come off the street and just start, take this course and do it. It's, it's generally the type of people that even get into this program that are sort of filtered through that, they're already good learners. They're already self-starters. They're already like smart people. Like almost everybody that comes into this has a college university degree already. And they're just looking for sort of a, a careers shift. So I don't know, that's generally how it is, is you can get a paying job uh, right out of the gate if you sort of have the personality type. And then a couple of years later, you start to see where are people? Are people burned out of it because they didn't actually like this? They don't actually sure. like coding and they're frustrated that Webpack changed again <laughs> and they, they're sick of it because they just wanted cash and they don't necessarily care all that much about all the changing in the web development industry. Or do they actually love it and do they love building stuff and are they love staying up to date? So it, it really starts to show through after after a couple of years because some people i do know after a couple of years of the boot camp are making six figures and oh, some sure. people i know are no longer doing development because they it just not it's just not in them they got into it for the wrong reasons or they just didn't they just didn't know which in that case it's glad you tried it but it maybe it's not for you yeah the explosion kind of of boot camps happened probably in what the last 3 to 4 years maybe they were yeah. they existed yeah. before that but kind of the massive explosion of availability of these which because like like accreditation is not necessarily meaningful if there's no accreditation possibility and things like that but it's really kind of difficult as someone who doesn't know about programming if you're going to a credible source and in hacker again i dislike that we're talking about hacker you and then talking about non-credible boot camps um <laughs> because it's absolutely not the case it's one of the finest boot camps for sure uh, yeah, the... it is accredited actually in Ontario. Oh, really? There's the... Oh, cool. Yeah, the, is that a Canadian uh, thing? The, yeah, well, the Ministry of Education came along and was like, "Hey, uh, you have to have this accredited." So, um, great. They, it's all it's is a lot of work for for them. I I wasn't involved in that, but yeah. uh, I know that they they did a lot of work, which is it's just amazing for uh, students coming out of it now. Yeah, that's that's really great. Um, so to to that end, though, I'm really interested to see what kind of comes of the hopefully and i think it's a good thing for the industry if like in five years after the boom uh you have suddenly way more programmers who have five years of experience who yeah have, have worked at their first job now and 
uh, know enough stuff to kind of move into more senior roles and things like that. So I'm interested to see how that kind of plays out. And and it seems like Hacker U's been around long enough to where you've seen that definitely happen for for some of the students. But I'm I'm hopeful that kind of these boot camps as a jumping off point can increase like the diversity. Like Hacker U's especially very good at diversity. I don't know the specifics, but uh, I mean it's it's woman led and is it yep are there other stuff yeah the ceo is a woman um so it was born out of this thing that we did in toronto called ladies learning code right um, okay which is the it's in the name is ladies learning code so mm-hmm. uh a lot of people who come to hacker you and, and come to the boot camp they're coming from ladies learning code because they took a a couple weekend courses and they stayed up all night building their website because they realized they just absolutely love it so uh yeah a huge push for diversity and that, and I think it's great to see that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I, it's increasing diversity in industry. Yeah, and, and I know we're three white guys uh, on a podcast talking about diversity, so we should get Heather on the show <laughs> sometime for sure because she, she has a lot of very interesting, good input on all this stuff. Uh, but the focus at these boot camps on diversity seems really important and good because a lot of times it is absolutely not the case that this is the only problem, but the pipeline is part of the problem, right? So the the pipeline of available engineers who exist is not a great pipeline, as well as the industry is not uh, have favorable conditions for diverse members of our community. But um, if we can get these kind of quicker starts, it seems like a faster fix than like going, uh, which we should absolutely still do. We should do the slow fix, but also the fast fix. Like you can go to elementary schools in different parts of town and put in more computers and add more teachers doing more courses out like there's all that but that's like a 20-year path to, to fixing things which we, yeah. we should we should do but but i really like that if someone kind of came up through a different path then they can kind of switch into the the boot camp path and change their career that obviously that opportunity is going to be available to people who have better opportunities in general and that's not always the case with diversity but, but focusing on that i think can really help to magnify those efforts uh, more quickly, which is, I I think, good. Yeah. So Wes, uh, you're constrained by time, like the the students, you know, they're in HackerU. Did you say it was 10 weeks? Um, I think it's nine weeks. Nine weeks. Okay. Do you, so naturally I'm I'm biased towards thinking about cross-browser compatibility and interoperability. Like, is it like, here's your assignment, if it works in Chrome, you get an A+, or do you actually teach like what the reality is of like front-end development with multiple browsers or? Yeah, that's, that's definitely a part of it. It's, it's not, a, I wouldn't say it's a huge part. Obviously it is like latest Chrome, Firefox working, that's great. And then the cross-browser compatibility stuff sort of comes after. So mm-hmm. I don't know, it's, it's not a huge, huge focus. I think that all can also be a bit of a, as important as it is, it's also a huge put off oh, yeah. for, for people because then you tell them to like open up a VM and start get IE9 working and, <laughs> and and then it starts to become less fun. So that, that stuff definitely comes and, and there's definitely a lot of like pain moments that you, you can hit along the way. Uh, but generally it's more focused on actually learning the stuff and sure, sure. Uh, getting the fundamentals down pat. I, I think there's a definitely a difference between web compatibility in the sense that things work back to IE6 and web compatibility in the sense that things work in all current major browsers because yeah. it uses yeah. standards and yeah. stuff like that. And those are two different skills. It's honestly not even that big of a deal anymore. 
it, it's funny because you do hear these boot camp students and part-time students going off about like ah freaking ie 11 <laughs> and they're like it's so old like i can't believe if the support that I was like oh like son sit down and let yeah. me tell you about the old days of png fix and all these things the rounded corner uh hack that we had coupon yeah, so let me tell you about some sliding doors i used to work at this so so this off topic but i used to work at this startup um this music-based startup and we we redesigned the site and it was working in all the evergreen browsers and we we were using html5 back when that was interesting and then we got it turned out that the people who we were partnering with only used ie7 these were like record industry execs mm -hmm. and that was such a it was such a painful month after that we're like we're like seriously right like ie10 was about to come out or something mm -hmm. it was yeah the the reality of what's important and when it's important is is an interesting topic that's totally not what we're talking about so i'll be quiet now <laughs> well, that's fine uh, we're kind of coming up in the last section of the podcast uh, where we do picks so uh, for people who haven't listened before this, this is kind of where we let's give let's call it a shout out to maybe something that uh, is cool in the industry or someone or a book or a tutorial um, and I'll start since I have one off the top of my head uh, but my my pick this week is is going to be interfaceleverage.com. Uh, I talked about it earlier. It's uh it's a website where you can go look at what inspires and got other people into design, um and uh, user interfaces and and UX and kind of uh, gain inspiration yourself. Mike, do you have something? Do you do you uh did I catch you off guard? No, I I do have something. Uh, maybe this is like not cool anymore but i recently started using this project called prettier oh yeah it's uh i guess it's it's just a javascript formatter mm -hmm. um and it and it runs it's it's like an npm thing so it's like you need the node stack to get it to work but you don't have to be using a node you know you don't have to be developing on node to use it but basically it's it's opinionated you can you can configure a couple of things but it's nice like if you've ever had to do code review and you're constantly like writing knit space before paren or knit you know like just like a big waste of time and so on this project i work on we just started like we decided let's just stick this in there like you can you can code however you want you can use all your own like weird habits but run this thing before you submit a pull request and it's great like you never have to worry about indenting your code ever again classic wes how about you um mine is a uh Chrome extension called um, NIM, Node Inspector Monitor. So um, if you run a Node app from the command line and you want to console log something, uh, you know that it, it's kind of stone agey because all you get is text and you don't get any of the formatting that you do in the regular console or any of the like um, debugging tools that you get in, in Chrome's uh, tool. So if you throw dash dash debug to a, a Node process, it will give you this like random URL that you can visit in your browser and then that will allow you to use the Chrome DevTools to inspect your application. Um, the problem with it is every time your application starts, it gives you a new URL. So you have to copy paste or click that URL every single time. So uh, what Node Inspector Monitor does is it will watch your system for these instances and it will automatically open it up. Um, and then recently, after I, I was chatting with the guy who builds it, 
it will now if you have like a, a node mon that kills your process and restarts it mm -hmm. every single time that you save a file um it will just refresh the page to the new url um, of the updated version of your debugging and so it's just like you would normally use in like a front end debugging you can use this in uh to debug all of your node stuff sure that's nifty so so it's a Chrome extension that port scans your computer and watches yep. uh, all your processes. Exactly. <laughs> Make sure everyone installs it as root. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. It uh, you give it a port and everything, and <laughs> on, on on as the... well. So yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe I am gonna get totally hacked and, and whatnot. But <laughs> uh, no, it, you, it, can, it seems... you can manually connect to it as well. But no way to live your life. It seems really cool because, uh, and I always hate talking about Noah without Michael because I'm sure he goes back and listens to these and then he's yelling because he knows something that, that I don't. But uh, <laughs> he, the, the path to this point has been long for, for no debugging. Like We've had Chrome yeah. DevTools pretty much the entire time that Node has been around. I'm pretty sure it's, it's roughly accurate. The good Chrome DevTools that, that could do this. And there have always been like little projects that pop up, no debugger. Um, and there was another one back in the day. And it was always just like, it runs Chrome DevTools, but it actually runs it as a totally separate web server. So it's not actually the Chrome DevTools you know, and all the good features are gone. You can't do any of this stuff. And so it's been years in the making that you can finally just run your Node app and you get Chrome DevTools automatically attached. So it's kid, the kids that you're going to teach this to in, in your node class are going to be like, I can't believe that it has to reload every time and it can't just do in memory swapping of something. And you're like, well, <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mike Taylor is, is one of my uh, favorite kids get off my lawn tweeters. So if you don't follow <laughs> Mike on Twitter, uh, he often tweets about websites he comes across that uh, have poor compatibility with the web in general uh and he his dry get off my lawn attitude about it is potentially some of my favorite twitter content uh, and wes is is notorious at this point for tweeting on tips and tricks uh so go follow wes boss it's just, yeah. just wes wsbos correct you have these really nice hot tips yeah so like you could do like you can search for wes boss and like a flame emoji and you'll learn so much really cool you, stuff you actually can't Nice. No, you can't because you can't search by emoji on Twitter. Oh, I have no way. Terrible. I get emails all the time. People are like, where's the like archive of your hot tips? And I don't have one. Uh, that's right. So, this is a tragedy. Yeah, you, you can use the Twitter stream API to search by emoji, but you cannot do like a, just a back search by emoji. That's rough. Yeah. Uh, so Mike Taylor's Twitter is, is his name, Mike Taylor, but there's no O at the end. So it's Mike Taylor. Mm -hmm. um that's just that that's what you guys both are pretty much everywhere so uh check those uh these guys uh stuff out uh, and we'll let we'll only play it was nice to talk to y'all bye thanks for having me thank you all right that wraps up this episode of js party hope you enjoyed it we record this show live every friday at 3 p.m u.s eastern so if you want to listen live you can head to changelaw.com slash community get in slack Hang out with us in real time. Special thanks to our sponsors, Sentry and TopTal. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. This episode was edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for JS Party is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. 
We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.